Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I say, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Our Father, we would pray for your help in understanding your word. Thank you that you promised to give it to those who ask. We ask humbly with a sense of your power at work within us through Jesus Christ. Amen. Advent is a season in which we are reminded of God coming. God coming, drawing near to mankind. We sang this morning, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Emmanuel, of course, meaning God with us. And then this evening, we sang that one of my favorite Advent hymns, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. What a wonderful theme this is. God coming, God drawing near. And we sing joy to the world. The Lord is come. We are proclaiming and rejoicing in, of course, something that actually happened in history. Jesus Christ came. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And here in Isaiah 40, we have a prophecy of that coming Many hundreds of years before Jesus came, Isaiah is proclaiming comfort to God's people in light of the coming of the future, at that time, Messiah. And I want us to think about his prophecy, not only as it proclaims Christ's coming in history, but also as we think of the personal application of that to our lives in our relationship with the God who has already come and who we know by faith. What is it like for God to come, for him to draw near? If it is true that Jesus Christ has invaded history, has come in space and time, if it is a reality that the Son of God walked the dusty roads of Palestine and did good deeds and laid down his life for sinners and he rose again victoriously, if all of that is true, then what does it look like, what does it mean, what does it feel like in the Christian's experience 
to live in light of the God who is near, the God who has come. It's not something that just happened long ago in an ancient land, but it's also Jesus Christ's coming in history has, I hope you will understand, it has present relevance to each person here. The context of Isaiah 40 is, of course, all the chapters that have come before this. There is a great break in the book of Isaiah at this point, at the beginning of chapter 40. And before this, although there are certain lists isn't complete, before this point in the book, the predominant theme of Isaiah has been judgment. If you just page back through chapter upon chapter, if there are headings in your but, but, but Bible, you will see headings such as, woe to Israel, woe to the nations around Israel. There's a lot of judgments proclaimed. And then at the end of chapter 39, uh, when we see Hezekiah the king uh, hosting these envoys from Babylon and unwisely showing him all the treasures, uh, there's this note that the Lord um, proclaims that Hezekiah's descendants, his own flesh and blood, will be taken away into exile. This dire prophecy of of exile closes the book, and then we begin in chapter 40 with this, this new hopeful theme, comfort, comfort. And the summary of this message of hope is found, as we have read, in verse 9 when we get to that point. And what's the message? What are the good tidings that are be to, be cl- to be proclaimed on a high mountain and that are to be ta- pro- proclaimed to all the towns? It's that one phrase at the end of verse 9. Maybe you remember it, especially in the King James. Behold your God. Or as the NIV has it, here is your God. And then verse 10, see the sovereign Lord comes. Here is your God, the heart of the gospel. Behold your God. And so after the long night of exile, can you imagine what the Israelites went through through those 70 years? That long night of warfare and sin, we might say. The long time of darkness brought on by the sins of the nation that has deserved judgment. At last, God himself is again coming to his own. John Calvin speaks of this phrase, behold, the Lord comes, and says, he speaks of the sum of our happiness, which consists solely in the presence of God. The sum of our happiness. That means the the totality of our happiness, which he says consists solely in the presence of our God. That's the good news. That's the heart of the gospel. If we don't have God, we have nothing. If we have him... We have all things. What does it mean then from our text to speak of God coming? What does it look like? What happens? What are we to expect? I would like us to look at three elements here, three aspects that certainly apply to Jesus coming in history, but then I want us to draw application as well to the manner in which he draws near to everyone who would believe on him and walk with him and experience daily Emmanuel, God with us. God's coming as it relates to three things. Number one, our sin. Number two, his glory. 
And number three, our perseverance. Our sin, his glory, our perseverance. And so let us look at these three elements that we find in our scripture. First of all, when God comes, when he comes near, he comes dealing with the problem of sin. The most fundamental problem we have. It's interesting that as Isaiah prophesies these things, you hear him speaking in the past tense. And if you didn't know when Isaiah lived, you'd wonder, well, when did he live and when did he say these things? Because he speaks about the comfort and the return from exile and the restoration as if they were past tense. But of course, Isaiah prophesied many years before the exile took place. But he's looking ahead with that prophetic perspective and he's speaking with such certainty as from the Lord that he uses this past tense because it's so certain that it will be accomplished by the Lord. And he is speaking about God's restoration of the nation after this exile. And he is called by God to proclaim comfort. And so he says that in verse 1. God is telling him, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. But then what's the first theme he jumps into. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. There's atonement, there's paying for sin, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And there are different views whether the Lord is saying that in a sense, Israel through that captivity period paid for her sin In other words, it was sufficient in God's mind. They had been punished enough. And so, in a sense, they atoned for their own sin, which could be the sense here. Not that anyone can pay for their own sin, but it's like the Lord is saying, it is enough. Restore them. But certainly, even if that is the main sense, what stands behind all that and comes out through the book of Isaiah in a very powerful way is the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, who's going to have to bear the real penalty for sin. There's this tremendous theme of atonement, of propitiation. You see, when God draws near, there has to be a solution to the problem of sin. When you think of it, most people don't think that their most serious problem is the problem of sin. If most people are having problems in their lives and they're losing sleep about something or they're they're thinking a lot about some one thing in their life that they wish they could change. Maybe it's a financial problem or a problem with their health or a broken relationship or something with a child or a parent or the need for guidance. Or There are lots of different problems that we have in our lives, and those are the kind of things that keep us awake at night. But very rarely is it, especially for someone who doesn't know the Lord, to ever think very deeply about the most fundamental problem, the greatest problem of our lives, of all of our lives, which is the problem of our sin. And so, when God comes, he comes dealing with this primary problem first. Really, this lack of insight that human beings have is nothing new. When you think of Jesus Christ when he came and was incarnate and walked on this earth, and you think of the people that surrounded him and wanted him and clamored for his attention and time, what did they want? 
They wanted healing, physical healing. They wanted food. They followed him, hoping that he'd multiply the, the fish and the bread. They wanted political change. Jesus, when are you going to straighten things out and get the Romans out of here? They wanted uh, to dispute with him because they were concerned that he was going to upset the apple cart in terms of the power they had. They came to him. There was a time a, a brother came to him and wanted Jesus to mediate an argument because they wanted more of their parents' inheritance. Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Did these people primarily see sin as the most fundamental issue of their lives? No. They were just like we are. But when God comes near, he comes to deal with sin and to give the very best solution to our worst problem. And so we know that Jesus came And from the cradle to the cross, he came with a single-minded purpose to die for sinners. And very soon, Isaiah will be speaking about that servant who would bear transgressions. And that's why the note of comfort can be so powerful. Because there's going to be a dealing with this sin that Her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Have you come to Jesus Christ with an understanding of this problem of sin and the wonderful comfort that Jesus came to bring, to atone for sin, to take care of the root problem we all have? And you and I are living And we can live in this daily relationship with him, with sin no longer separating us, and with a great amazement and wonder at his grace that cleanses us every day and enables us to stand before God. Well, there are two further themes under this first point even, that as we talk about sin, that come out here in Isaiah. One is the whole theme of atonement in verse verse 2 that we saw this idea of uh, propitiation, that, that sense of God paying for sin. And then there's this further idea of repentance. And we find this in verses three and four, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. And it talks about Uh, Low places being made high, high places being brought down, the rugged places, a plain, and the glory of the Lord revealed. The ministry of John the Baptist was a fulfillment of this text. And John came preaching a baptism of repentance. And so when we talk about God dealing with this problem of sin, not only is there what God does in atoning for our sin... But there's also, Scripture highlights what our response should be, and that is, it's to be repentance. There's to be a leveling. There's to be a making way for the Lord. In other words, we, we grapple with our sin in an attitude of repentance, a turning from sin in our lives. When I read texts like this, I always can't help but make modern applications of what it would be like. A few months ago, If you're living around here, you know that President Bush came here again. He's been here a number of times over the past few years, but he came to Lancaster Airport not far from here, 
And we all know what happened that day. If you read the news the next day and that he was running late, he, he came to Lancaster Airport and the police cordoned off somehow Oregon Road and he drove back Oregon Road with his motorcade. You imagine all these SUVs and then cut across down Oregon Pike, past Oregon Dairy, I guess, and got on 222, down 222 to Route 30 and then to the place that he was going. And then when he was done, he had to come back. But apparently he stayed later than he was supposed to stay and and they closed off these roads. You know, they prepared the way for the president. And people, I even read that they were stuck in Oregon Dairy for maybe an hour and a half because they had it blocked off. The president was coming by. They went to these great extremes, and it, it caused a big problem. I was thinking, what if you had just paid your grocery bill at Oregon Dairy, and you got in the car with the ice cream and got to the end of the driveway and then waited an hour and a half You know, you'd be really stewing at the president at that point. You made my ice cream melt. Well, that's the idea. A radical preparation. The Lord is coming. And in those days, they had potholes a lot worse than we did. The dirt roads, they got ready. And this this brings out this response of repentance. God deals with our sin by his grace. Jesus Christ came to die. But the response he commands Prepare the way of the Lord is repentance and faith. In a sense, he asks us to turn our world upside down. And, you know, those who are high and mighty are to humble themselves. James says it this way when he talks about our right response to the Lord. James chapter 4 at verse 8. Come near to God and he will come near to you. There it talks about God coming near. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Speaking about both our outward behavior and our inward attitude of heart. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. That's that same theme of preparing the way for the Lord. Our natural inclination is to see all the other problems of our lives as more pressing and important somehow. And God wants us to get to the heart of the problem in our lives, which is sin. And to trust in him and to repent. But secondly, the second main theme we see here is when God comes, he comes revealing his glory. That's a theme that breaks out again and again. And if you think about the Christmas hymn, so often we're speaking about the glory of the Lord. We sing glory and we sing it for 35 notes, some of those hymns. He comes revealing his glory. We see that in verse 5. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. And then, in contrast to the glory of the Lord in verse 5, we see about man's glory in verses 6 through 10. A voice cries, verse 6, cry out, and I say, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory, there's that word glory, are like the flowers of the field. The glory of the Lord is going to be revealed, but what's man's glory like? Well, it's like the grass. It's like the flowers. And if you looked out in your yard recently, they're certainly all faded now. The ones that hung on, you know, through October, and you got to have the flowers out a little bit longer than maybe some years in the past, their glory is gone. The Apostle John picks up on this theme in John chapter 1. In verse 14, he says, The Word became flesh, there's the same, same theme, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Isn't this what happened when Jesus Christ finally came? The glory of the Lord was revealed. Yes, it was revealed in, we might say, a more subdued way. When he comes again in glory, it's going to be a public proclamation and a visible thing to all the world. Here it was veiled. It was enfleshed. Jesus came in humility. And if we want to know what is God like, we need only to look at the life of Jesus Christ because the glory was revealed even though it was veiled in flesh. But a present aspect, uh, an aspect of our present experience of God is this same thing. God revealing his glory. And we are creatures who are like flowers that fail. How does that work? Well, God enables us to see his sovereign power and the unfailing certainty of the truth of his word. And in the face of our weaknesses and on our frailty, we are like flowers. We are like the grass that fades. God's glory, nevertheless, is revealed. Present tense, even now, in his people. Where is our own strength? It's nowhere. It cannot be found. Where is our own self-sufficiency? It's in the dust, isn't it? And so when God comes, he reveals his glory even through vessels of clay. For God to draw near means that his people know and experience his sovereign power and his grace in even tremendous suffering and weakness. Isn't that what the New Testament describes again and again and again? We think of 2 Corinthians, that that epistle that that brings out this theme over and over again. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says it this way, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. In other words, there's a purpose to the fact that this power is in jars of clay to show something that the all-surpassing power is from God. And then there's that sentence that follows that, that just in such a wonderful way shows the balance that God brings out. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Maybe you feel like one of those descriptions right now. That's the way God intends to show his all-surpassing power, his glory. Later on, Paul talks about his own thorn in the flesh in chapter 12, and he's talking about this thorn that he besought the Lord three times, that the Lord would take it from him. But, of course, the Lord's response was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We have the treasure in jars of clay. Some of you watched the University of Pittsburgh upset West Virginia yesterday. You know, Pittsburgh, here they are, four and seven. They have a losing season. And here, their final game, they're playing the number, one, the number two team, right? Now, what made their upset victory so glorious for the fans of Pittsburgh, you know, not for the West Virginia fans? Wasn't it because they were so utterly weak? No one expected them to give them even a fight. And so, it was especially glorious. Well, that in a very dim way, shows the glory of God being revealed in our lives. And so, are we seeking God's glory? 
God is glorified when we put our faith in Him in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our weakness. When we look to His promises as our ultimate hope, His promises that are all sufficient for us in Jesus Christ, that brings Jesus more glory because we're saying to Him, I need you desperately. And that's what it's all about when God comes. And Christians are people who have experienced Emmanuel, God with us. And we say we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. Jesus is with us. I remember a speaker at one of our men's retreats a few years ago and did an excellent job speaking about uh, some of the issues that men's that men face. And I remember one illustration he gave that just has stuck with me. He talked about his relationship to his stepson, who still lived at home at that point. I think his stepson was 17 or 18. And this speaker talked about the fact that every day he'd come home from work, and he knew his stepson was up in his bedroom, and his stepson was far from the Lord at this point, and didn't want anything to do with his stepdad, you know, this religious stepdad. And the dad knew that God's calling in his life at that moment was to walk up those steps and go into his stepson's room and in a kind and non-judgmental way to just say hi, try to connect with that stepson a little bit. You know, not to go up there and necessarily preach a sermon to him uh, and not maybe to spend three hours there, but just to go up there and to connect. And as he described his need for God's help in that moment, he said he would walk up the stairs with a knot in his stomach because this is not something that he relished doing. Now, to me, that illustration has stuck with me because it's so well summarized our calling to be trusting in Jesus Christ that his glory would be revealed in the very mundane moments of our lives. And you and I each are going to have moments, maybe not with our stomach in knots this week, but there are going to be moments that God is calling us to trust in him. And when God comes in his redemptive power in our lives, he reveals his glory in jars of clay in you and in me. Well, finally, when God comes, he comes with persevering power. He comes as the shepherd of his lamb. And he comes as the sovereign Lord with power to reign. I want you to look at these two images. God comes enabling us to persevere in faith. And verses 10 and 11 describe what you might think would be contradictory images of this great king coming. Verse 10 says, the sovereign Lord comes, his arm rules for him, and his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. There's the picture of a mighty conquering king. And then, verse 11, with hardly a breath, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. And amazingly, both those images are true. Jesus is the lion and he's the lamb. Even in his earthly incarnation, uh, with he, w- showing such great compassion Uh, not snuffing out the smoldering wick, not breaking the bruised reed. Jesus was also coming with great authority, teaching as no one else had ever taught, speaking the truth of God. Here is the lion and the lamb, the one who 
rules the nations with a rod of iron, as we're also told in Psalm 2, and yet who at the same time gathers the lambs in his arms. What an amazing God we have. And in the incarnation, Jesus Christ draws near to us. And so, not only does he rule the universe, but now we're told he's able to sympathize those who are struggling, those who are oppressed by sin and suffering, this one who will ultimately judge the world. And so I want us to just hear the force of this truth. What does it look like? What does it feel like for God to come near to us? Well, part of it is God promises to the Christian to be near both as the one in whom we trust, the great King and Lord of all, and the one to whom we go in our suffering and sorrow and our strivings against sin. And yes, even with the lesser problems of this life, the list that I gave you earlier, the kinds of things that we wrestle with every day. And this God comes to guide us. This God comes to give us strength to tend his flock, to let his rod and his staff comfort us, as Psalm 23 says. And even as he says at the end of Isaiah, so do not faint. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. When God comes, he comes with persevering power in his people's lives. One of the books that I got to read over sabbatical was a book titled Polishing God's Monuments. And I was just intrigued by that book. It was uh, featured on the Westminster Seminary Presbytery uh, uh, website. It was written by a pastor about a decades-long struggle that his daughter and son-in-law went through pretty much from their wedding day with very, very severe illness, his daughter especially, but his son-in-law to some extent as well. Uh, The most unusual set of diseases that I've ever heard described and read about in depth in this book, it involved uh, extreme chronic fatigue syndrome, although I know that disease has a new name that has to do with immunities, along with a very extreme experience of multiple chemical sensitivities in this daughter's life, so that at times she couldn't drink water, they couldn't hardly find any water for her to drink that didn't have some kind of chemical in it that she'd react to, and just she could hardly find clothes to wear, and she couldn't uh, eat many kinds of food. It's a very long, drawn-out thing. I can't really even give you a glimpse of the depths of suffering of these two young Christians who loved the Lord over many, many years. And he's writing now 20 or 30 years after the fact of going through this. And it's not even over yet at this point. I won't give you the end of the book, but it's, there's no great miraculous total transformation. But the thesis of the book is this. You and I are called by God to polish or to remember in faith his mighty acts on our behalf. Polish the monuments. Just like the Israelites built that monument after they crossed the Jordan, each tribe took a stone and put it there to remember the act of God on their behalf. And as we remember that, as we polish God's monuments, we are strengthened to believe his promises for today's need, for today's grace. And today's fight of faith. And so this book is a great encouragement to faith, to see God's hand over the long haul, whether we're looking in the Bible or in other 
people's lives or in our own lives, we see something of the monuments of God's work. And so Jesus Christ has come in history to redeem a people for himself, and now he ever lives, we know, as the shepherd of our souls, and the one who came keeps us to the end. Take hold of the promise of comfort that he gives, the promise of full atonement for our sins, the promise of his glory in our weakness, and the comfort that he will never fail to carry his lambs close to his heart. Let's pray. Our Father, we do rejoice in the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. As we reflect on that, help us to bow in awesome silence and in expectant trust in you. And even as we face life this week, whether it's sorrows or joys that's before us, we pray that you would help us to do it, trusting the one who came for us. We pray in his name.